Welcome back to the Get Outside with Kids podcast with Kate and Jen. I watched a really interesting TED Talk recently called The Real Reason Kids Fidget. And I thought it was so interesting that I actually reached out to the speaker, Angela Hanscombe, and invited her to come onto our show. So Angela Hanscombe is a pediatric occupational therapist and founder of Timbernook, an award-winning developmental and nature-based program that has gained international popularity. She is the author of Balanced and Barefoot, How Unrestricted Outdoor Play Makes for Strong, Confident, and Capable Children. Hanscom was also a frequent contributor to the Washington Post. And in 2019, she won a Business of the Year Award for the state of New Hampshire. Welcome, Angela. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So, Angela, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about the maybe the topic that I saw in your TED Talk, because it's so fascinating, the real reason kids fidget. Um, I recently went to my kid who is five to her kindergarten classroom to help out one afternoon with something and watching them all together, I guess, you know, I'm not an educator. I've never really been in a classroom setting, but seeing that number of kids together and the amount of fidgeting that's going on, you know, as they're sitting there on the carpet, 15, five-year-olds trying to listen for just two minutes, one of them accidentally did a somersault, you know, like just sitting there like, oh, whoops, I accidentally tumbled all over. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about that that whole topic. Why, why are kids fidgeting? What's happening when they're fidgeting? What's going on in their brains? And ha- how can we kind of work with that process? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I really was wondering the same thing. And, you know, I got invited to observe a fifth grade classroom from a teacher. This was in 2012. And um, it was before for Timbernook. And she said, you know, I know you're an occupational therapist. I I need help. I need exercises or something because these kids are fidgeting like crazy. And I did. I went into the classroom and I was I was kind of expecting that they would be tapping their pencil or fidgeting in, in smaller ways, but these kids were leaning back in the chairs at extreme angles where there was like one point of contact on the ground with their chairs. Um, one kid was actually rocking in his chair back and forth, like which was interesting. Another kid was hitting his head with a plastic water bottle. Kids finding any excuse to get out of their chair, sharpening their pencils, going to the bathroom. So that was really interesting to me. There was one little girl in that room that was not fidgeting in extreme ways. And so I asked her, you know, what do you do for fun? And she told me, I do dance and gymnastics almost every day. So that will make sense in a minute. But I was like, huh, that's really interesting. So my colleague and I were going to um, implement a therapeutic dance program for that classroom. And we wanted something to get them moving in all different ways um, to see if that improved attention. So we decided to do like a pilot study. We wanted to look at their you know, core strength, their stomach muscles and their back muscles. And we compared that to 1984 which was my generation growing up, you know, the averages for core strength back then. And then we also had them spin in circles. So your listeners can do this at home if they want. But basically, you spin 10 times to one direction. And what that does is it works on one inner ear. And then you spin 10 times in the other direction. And it works on the other inner ear. And then you close your eyes and you try doing it again. And we take away that visual piece you're really igniting your balance system. We call it the vestibular sense. So we had the kids do that. And they they really, what should happen after spinning 10 times is your eyes should um, move back and forth vigorously. We call it nystigmus. And so 
after spinning, we, we often observe the eyes of a child and we look for that normal reflex. And a lot of those kids were having, there was no eye movement at all, which means they have a, there's something dysfunctional going on with their balance system. And then your eyes, you know, for the kids where their eyes were moving, it should stop after a minute. And if it keeps moving, then that means they have a very sensitive balance system. And so, again, we saw a lot of kids that had excessive eye movement after. Um, and then, there, you know, kids were falling on the ground, um, trying to moderate, like change the way they spun, like go slowly, shuffle in circles very slowly. It was very interesting. So when we, again, look for a normal balance reaction and combine that with just having core strength um, that compared to the averages from 1984, we found only one out of every 12 kids could meet both norms. And so that was super alarming because, again, Whoa. one every 12 compared to my generation. So my my theory is that kids are con constantly in this upright position. You know, they're sitting for a majority of the day. In fact, recent research that I sat in on um, in the field of occupational therapy was looking at how often children are literally sitting in a chair is nine hours a day here in America. So that's a lot. That's a lot of sitting in a chair. And what happens is, you know, sort, certain muscles will shorten that shouldn't be shortened. Certain muscles will lengthen that shouldn't be, you know, and also if you're in this upright position all the time, we need to move in vigorous ways um, throughout the day, really. We need to spin in circles. We need to go upside down. We need to roll down the hill you know, move our head in all different directions because, again, inside the inner ear, there's little hair cells in there and we need to move the fluid back and forth through vigorous movement to stimulate those hair cells. And that is what develops your vestibular system. And that sense is key to all the other senses. So if you ever hear of a therapist talking about sensory integration, that's basically organization of the brain um, in order to allow for learning, in order to be regulated emotionally, um, to keep a child from being super hyper, you know, like if they get or if they do get off the wall to naturally bring that back down again, um, that vestibular sense needs to be really strong. And that means they need ample opportunities to move frequently throughout the day. So wow. my theory is that kids are being overly restricted in their ability to move and play and it's really affecting their vestibular sense and, in essence, everything. As we're all sitting here recording this podcast, um, and most of us sit as adults all day too, right? Like, I think what you're saying is so relevant for kids, but like, we all sit all day and this is probably affecting adults as well. Um, and, and Kate, what did you want to share on that? I feel like we have both had like so many expressions as Angela was just describing those like not so great numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's horrifying. I mean, the number you just said of nine hours of sitting a day, you know, you think of that, you think of your kids getting up, they sit down to eat their breakfast, they sit in their car seats when they go to school or whatever. They sit when they come home and they're eating, you know, they sit at school and like I've really been thinking about the screen time number, but the sitting number is really important too, it sounds like. If you're in a, say you're a teacher with a bunch of kids there, like what would the ideal setting be here to let kids actually fidget, move, like stimulate that system inside the inner ear there? And also, you know, listen sometimes. I don't know how important that is. <laughs> but like also kind of integrating that into teaching um, at a school level. Yeah, those are both great statements um, to address the adult thing first. Um, so adults um, also need to, like a lot of us are not moving like we 
should. And, you know, we're not like going upside down or rolling down the hills anymore. And so occupational therapists will often work with geriatric populations to keep moving and doing aerobics and dancing um, to prevent falling um, and hip fractures and that sort of thing to become safer in their environment. And, um, you know, what's scary to me is that kids are literally falling out of their chairs in school now because their uh, body awareness isn't there. That vestibular sense, one of the things it does is it helps you know where your body is in space and it helps you get from point A to point B safely on and on, on and off playground equipment effectively. And the way we treat that is we have kids spin in circles in a, in a clinic setting and we'll put them on swings and we will purposely position them in all different ways so that they really know where their body is when they are um, moving around. And so for adults, like we have a choice if we want to move or not, but kids are not given a choice all the time. And so it should be a very big red flag if we have more and more kids falling out of chairs in school. And um, it is also one of the reasons why adults can't tolerate rides when they get older. You know, they start to feel nauseous when they go on spinning rides. Oh, my rides gosh. Or really? Oh, yeah. roller coasters is because we are too sedentary and we're not moving enough. So that vestibular oh, system horrible. can can weaken over time (laughs) so we do need to keep moving but also kids you know and kids are developing and making new connections at a rapid rate when they're young Mm -hmm. so it's even more important that we're they're getting stimulated properly and then I think your second question was like how to promote kids to move more in a classroom environment and I think that's a that's a (laughs) that's a harder a harder thing I think that's like a whole life it's almost like a lifestyle change for schools. Like it's a really a new way of thinking, but we have to remember what is truly learning and you know, kids learn best through engaging multiple senses and when it's meaningful and not necessarily when they're sedentary. I do believe that moving around the, even in the classroom, but um, you know, especially outdoors where the senses are fully engaged, it really just, I mean, makes new connections in the brain. Now, in some of the notes that we were discussing earlier, what you shared is um, you said outdoor play is really at risk right now. Um, So share some of the the background and what you're seeing there. And and why is outdoor play specifically so important for everything we're talking about right now? As an occupational therapist, um, we work on the occupation of a child if you're in the pediatric realm. And it's really school and play (laughs) is really like two of their main occupations. And outdoor play is something that is wasn't really being addressed. Um, when I started this work, it was, you know, we often in therapy clinics, we're, we are often indoors as occupational therapists. So we work in hospital settings, we work in schools, we work in therapy clinics indoors, and we'll bring in a little box of sand and call that sensory. We, you know, put our swings inside, we bring in board games. And I kept, the more I observed children playing outdoors and compared that to the clinic setting, the more I realized like, you know, what about the occupation of outdoor play? You know, you know that is something that is really at risk and um, it is affecting development in ways we never anticipated. And then the, your other question about like, how is it important? There's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a question that I feel like there's years and years of research and we're just, um, it's so rich. When kids are playing outdoors, um, the first thing that I talk about is just even stepping outside is therapeutic. Um, For instance, when you step outdoors, multiple synapses are firing because you're going to have different senses outside than you 
than you are indoors, right? So you might have like um, bird sounds outside, the ground is uneven. So you're constantly adjusting your body and your balance. Whereas indoors, everything's kind of flat. So you don't really have to think about it much, but there's all sorts of different senses engaged. And then you're just, your ability to move in all different ways is bigger outside, right? So you can, you can go upside down, you can spin in circles, you can climb trees. There's more space for other children as well. Um, so the social piece is also important to think about. Often in the classroom, kids are too close to each other. <laughs> and so that can be dysregulating when, um, you know, they're very close to each other and there's a lot of transitions inside. But yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of benefits. I could talk for a whole day about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we we started our podcast because we know that we feel better outside with our kids yes. and we know that our kids, you know, they do things, they can experience things, they can have, but we're obviously not occupational therapists coming to it. So fascinating that all of this, you know, all of these things are having such unintended consequences. I guess just thinking about this, I mean, we have young children. Uh, Jen and I both have kids who are three and five. And so, you know, one of the things that we try to do with our kids is just that time outside with no kind of agenda, just like being outside. But I know you have older children, Angela. I'm interested in like, how do you kind of promote this as a lifelong thing to kids that they need to be outside, unrestricted, playing? And what does that look like for teenagers? I'm personally terrified of having teenagers. So any tips, you know, like how, how do you not just get them sitting out there sulking in a corner? Isn't that what teenagers do? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I do believe like if you start younger, it's definitely easier. Um, it reminds me of, for instance, I'm going to start really young. Like, so when I had my son Noah, when he was a baby, what I noticed is I would put him in the dirt. And it's funny because I just finished, I was finishing the last chapter in the book and, I, and you know and I'm putting him in the dirt and he's going oh like his feet are he's just you can tell he doesn't like it and I'm like oh no I just wrote this book and he doesn't he doesn't like nature but you know I just kept putting him out there and you know over time he started crawling and you know as you crawl you know that light touch can feel very aversive for some children and as he was crawling he was getting deep pressure and that deep pressure neurologically helps to override that light touch sense that can feel aversive for some children. And so um, it's same with pain, right? If you get hurt, you usually press on it. So when he was crawling, he started to integrate that light touch sense over time. And so he was able to tolerate um, different textures outside. Now, if I had waited, and I've seen this happen where you'll see a, like a three-year-old where the parent will try to put them on the grass or on the beach for the first time, and the kid is more cognitively aware <laughs> yeah. that he, they might not like the sensation. And so you hear, you know, they have a tantrum or they're screaming or they're very afraid. And so I really... If you're, you have a really young one, like I recommend right away that they go outside and experience nature and start to integrate the senses. And then um, as they get older, um, I, you know, continue to go out with them and um, you can use different things to inspire them to play if they have a hard time. So some kids, you know, they just don't have a lot of practice playing outside. And so there's ways to inspire them to play and then to phase that out. So if you have children like between ages three and five, uh, you know, the younger children, for instance, you, you use your natural environment. So if you have some mud puddles, you can experiment and put 
interesting items right near the mud puddle and kind of pre-stage something out there without saying anything, you know, just giving them permission to play with the items. For instance, you might put like a stainless steel tray and um, a stainless steel pitcher and some, you know, different kitchen stuff right near that mud puddle and um, just place them near it and you're there for, you know, safety and see what they do with it. And often because they're adult items and they're not toys with preconceived ideas on how to use them, they will start to experiment and create new, what we call affordances, new play affordances with those items. And then you can, for older kids, like building forts is another thing, like just giving them the opportunity and providing some new novel materials out there for them can be enough to spark interest. For instance, uh, planks and tools, old curtains, rope, um, but, you know, placing some of that stuff out there and saying you can use anything you see out there, giving them permission to do so. The other thing I try to do is and I recommend having friends over for not a play date, but for like the entire day (laughs) because other children will inspire those kids to play in new ways. For instance, I want to give an example of like what I hear often. So sometimes I will have a parent come up to me and say, I just send my child outside and they come back in and they're like, I have no idea what to do out there. I'm bored. You know, so all they see is sticks, rocks and leaves, right? So if you send that same child outside, sometimes boredom is also really important where they just go back outside and let's say they pick up a stick and they go, they start digging with it and they realize, okay, I have one affordance you know, I can use this to dig with one idea. And then maybe they start drawing with it and they realize I have two affordances. This can be used to dig and it also can be used to write. And let's say you there's another child out there who picks up a stick and builds a fort. Now that child has three play ideas. They can build a fort with it, they can draw it, and they can dig. So the more exposure they get to those materials and the more time they have with them, the more creative they get. And they also get inspired by watching other children. Now for teenagers, I, it does definitely benefits them greatly to start them off young so that they have a lot of pr- practice and they feel very comfortable being outside. And as young children, you start to phase yourself out as well. So like when they get a little older, you really should allow them to be more independent. You know, we're biking to a, another friend's house or giving them that sense of freedom, starting to let go of fears, <laughs> like our own personal fears. And then they get more confident and capable with that freedom and they show they're trustworthy and then you can allow for more space. So my own my own daughters are now like 14 and 17 but they've also had years and years of timbernuck and creating societies out in the woods and having freedom and biking to friends houses but they're like off on their own taking the truck with their dirt bikes down to a pit like where i don't you know they're totally independent um and then they're kayaking and you know going on different adventures with much more risk but also they've proved trustworthy so yeah as they got older it's been more like high adventure type type um, opportunities for them. I don't know if that helps, but well, it's, that yeah. tends to be what they they're interested awesome. in. <laughs> Are they scary? Are the teenagers scary, Angela? No, it's so much fun. <laughs> no, I, I love, love it. that. I mean, it, so I think it really, it really illustrates for me that one starting young is so key. And so for any of our listeners who have very young children, like it is never too early to start. And the sooner you're able to get your really young kids outside, the better, um, because it really does make a difference. And I think it's that exposure and practice piece. Like 
We expect kids to practice reading and writing and math. Of course, they have to practice playing outside with sticks. Like Just like any of those other skills that we're building up in our children, practice makes perfect. Uh, now, Angela, you touched a little bit on Timber Nook. Um, and I've been looking at this website. I'm like, oh my gosh, this place is so cool. I want to send my children there, except we are uh, very far apart from each other <laughs> on the continent here. Uh, but Angela, can you tell us a little bit about what is Timber Nook and what is this amazing outdoor um, experience for kids? Give us a little rundown of what that looks like. Yeah, sure. So it's basically um, grand scale play opportunities. So it's, you know, trying to be as authentic as possible with a play environment. Um, Again, true occupation is a choice. It's got to be meaningful to the children. It's got to be child directed. Really, our job is just to inspire them but the adults really step back out there. So the environment is kind of pre-staged when they come out. For instance, younger children might have the opportunity to see a puppet show or um, someone might like tell them a story of three little pigs. And then there would be real bales of hay out there, you know, a big pile of of sticks, like heavy sticks, um, real bricks out there. There might be wolf masks and tails. And for children that don't have a lot of practice, like this is a little bit like that bridge where they need some extra inspiration. And so after hearing the story, they have the opportunity to create their own three little pig homes. Whether they do that or not is their choice. We've had kids like create wolf groups and like clans and they start making traps out of pulleys and uh, milk crates and try to trap each other. And, you know, so it's really cool to see what happens. They usually have between three and four hours at least to dive deep into that play scheme as well. So it's really neat to see how long it takes too for kids to dive into that deeper, um, really rich play. Uh, And then, you know, um, we see kids all the way up to age about 14, I would say. But yeah, there's, I think we have over 500 play opportunities, you know, so like where they've created, you know, they've created entire villages out there. We've had, you know, people create ball runs out out there, you know, giant ball runs with um, tubes and gutters and throughout the trees. So it's just really different play opportunities in all different kinds of environments. Yeah, I think we had a guest on and the the guest said it took 45 minutes of outdoor play before they started to get into the activity. So 45 minutes was actually just the starting point of getting to activity. And I remember Kate and I being so surprised by that statistic because often we just don't have that level of time outside. And I was like, oh, that's a really different way of thinking about having a big chunk outside to really go deep into an activity like that. Yeah, because if you think about it, it takes time to figure out who am I going to play with? What am I going to play? And then dive deep into that play scheme. And so like, that's why I feel like 20 minute recess sessions don't work because (laughs) you're just getting to the actual play scheme and then the bell rings. So at least 45 minutes um, for them to to dive into play. I think we're coming up to about 45 or 50 episodes of our podcast now that we've been running this year. And I, I've learned so much about parenting and, and play already from it, but it just keeps coming up that we just have to spend more time outside, that you have to be more patient than I think I was prepared to be as a parent of young kids in waiting for it to happen and giving the kids the chance and the opportunity to play out there. Like Jen said, like we've had, we've talked to people before like, oh, well, my kids spent 10 minutes outside and then was knocking at the door, had to come in, couldn't handle it anymore. But like the message being keep persevering through that, stay patient with it, you know, help give them a little hand. I love that three little pigs example. That's so cool. Um, <laughs> and like helping them to to learn how to do it and that that's a process. I guess as I think about this, Angela, I think about what you 
you said about adults. There's also me selfishly wondering about myself. I'm sure I'm the same. I spend, I have a, you know, a desk job. I spend a lot of time sitting. For adults, is this stuff reversible? Like, you know, the people who have been falling and breaking hips as elderly people, was there a point you could have intervened? Can you intervene at, at any age? Obviously, I'm going to guess it's best if you start your kids, you know, moving their bodies in this way as a baby. But like, is it too late for me? Is it all over? <laughs> um, it's definitely definitely not too late. The, you know, the brain is so uh, amazing. Um, however, it does. You can create more change um, and be more effective the first seven years of life. And so those are kind of critical years um, to develop. However, you know, even a child like in middle school or, you know, older, especially if we're talking about the senses, um, you definitely can create change. We, we've talked a lot on previous episodes. I mean, we had uh, Kate's parents actually on who had their upbringing, Kate's upbringing, spent so much time outside. And I think one of the big differences was, and, and thinking about my childhood was very different, but our parents just used to say, go outside and play. And so I had a little neighborhood group of kids and we did spend hours un unsupervised outside like every day. You'd come home from school. It was like three o'clock. Your parents probably gave you a snack and then they like kicked you out of the house, like come back for supper or come back when the street lights turn on. And us and our little gaggle of friends between the ages of, I don't know, seven to 14, We'd just go outside and play and we'd wander around the neighborhood. There was a forest down the street or a playground. And I think that's the really hard part. A lot of what's missing in schedules. Some of it is lack of access to outside spaces, the way our, our cities develop. Um, and some of it is that change in, I think that that level of freedom of sending kids outside. I feel like probably by six or seven, my kids were like, my parents were like, okay, there you go. If you're playing with a friend outside, you're safe. And now I look at my kid who's almost six and I'm like, oh my gosh, I definitely wouldn't send you outside by yourself quite yet. Like, <laughs> I'm not ready for that. I'm not sure he's ready for that. And I'm pretty sure my neighbors would call me and be like, uh, Jen, you've lost one of your children outside. Um, are you aware that he's wandering down the street? Um, so I think some of that has shifted in our society too. And so really looking for these opportunities when we can to send our children outside um, and give them as, freedom, as much freedom as you can in, in the area that you're in. And obviously that's going to vary quite a bit depending on where you are. Yes, definitely. So Angela, we like to ask our uh, guests when they come on, and I'm sure that you would have some good examples of this. We also like to share the fact that most, not most of the time, a lot of the time getting outside with kids is a messy, muddy, you know, adventure and things go wrong. Um, do you have any stories from Timbernook or from your own kind of parenting adventures where things have gone wrong? Maybe you learned something, maybe you didn't. I often don't learn anything except, you know, sometimes shame. But uh, <laughs> do you have any stories you can share of when things have gone wrong when you've been getting outside with your kids? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Play is not perfect. <laughs> I guess play is, is messy in itself. So I would say that every day there's, you know, some messy things going out there in the woods and not just like messy in that they, they're getting dirty, but messy in that um, emotionally as well. And so a great example of that is we had a group of girls out there one time building a teepee. And they were really excited about it. They had put a lot of work into it. And this little boy went up to them and said, you need to let me play, like very loudly. And we were actually training people at the time. So anytime you're training, you want things to go nicely. But what happened was those girls ended up um, forming a chain and defending their fort. 
and saying, no, 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 we won't. And so he got really mad. They had some fake gems in their teepee. And so he ended up, and he has scissors. So everyone's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> watch out for the scissors. So, but we were watching and the, our instinct as adults was to go in right away and do something about it, right? But something told me to just wait to see, you know, how are, how are they going to handle this? And so we were watching um, for safety. Um, he ended up cutting a piece of their twine or their decoration, put the scissors down and then stole their fake gems. And then he took off running. And so what happened was the girls chased him around the woods and over and over again. And one of the providers was like, okay, he's bound to get tired. You know, something's going to happen here. And so that's what happened. They kept chasing him. And then finally he stopped and he said, fine, just take the gems. And so he went over to a tree, crossed his arms, and he was sulking. He was really upset. The girls went back to their teepee, redecorated it. They were singing a song. And then maybe a minute or two into it, one of the little girls went over and sat down beside him. And we were like, this is interesting. We couldn't hear what they were saying because we wanted to respect their privacy, but we could hear the noise level. And so she starts talking to him and immediately he gets his voice raises and he's like, blah, 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 blah. He gets upset. So she puts her hand up and just quietly waits for him to calm down. And then he gets upset and starts blah, 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 blah. Again, she puts her hands up and just waits for him to calm down. And then she talks to him again. And his voice ends up coming down and he has a conversation with her. By the end of it, all we see is she waves him on and that little boy is included for the rest of their week in their play. Oh, now, if so we had gone... <laughs> If we had gone in from the very beginning and said, you, you need to let him play, I always ask people, like, what opportunities do you think they would have missed out on? Yeah, that and, is so yeah, sweet. Just, yeah, and just, like, because he was authentically included, um, it was no longer an issue. Uh, mm. They solved their own problem without an adult needing to, inter you know, do it for them. So there was no resentment. You know, yeah. like if we had said, you need to let him play, they could have resented him and he could have resented them. It could have been an ongoing issue needing adult interaction. But because we allowed them to solve their own problem, they learned, you know, how to do conflict resolution through play, which is the best way to learn <laughs> conflict resolution, right? Yeah, that girl's going to be an amazing parent. <laughs> yeah, she's got really strong social, social emotional yeah. skills. She's very talented. But, you know, just thinking about, like, how often do we do it for them and not yeah. allow them to solve their own problems and work through conflict resolution through play? Yeah, I really love that. I feel like I have two boys who are, you know, almost six and three, as we said on the podcast. And I feel like we're at the point now where I am trying to step back more. Like, there's a point when you have a very young baby where you're like, one small move might accidentally kill your newborn yeah. baby. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, right yeah, for safety, the, right? For safety. Now that the three, almost three and a half, year old, like he's a sturdy kid now. So I'm less concerned about like something, you know, quite terrible happening. And I have been at times now trying to step back. And, and sometimes I'll just ask them, like, do you, does anyone need mommy to come in and help? Or do you guys think you can figure this out? And often when I even give them the opportunity, they'll be like, oh, fine, we'll just figure it out ourselves. And, but then they do, and they figure out how to share the toy or take a turn. And so I think it is waiting a little bit, waiting that extra little bit longer till things have you know, as a parent, you kind of know when you've hit that escalation point of like, okay, it's not, you know, they've hit the point yeah. where somebody needs to step in, but giving them before, I feel like I would rush in right away. And now it's like, well, you know, we'll wait. And 
oftentimes they are starting to figure it out or they're starting to use their words. It's actually my three-year-old who I feel like who has more emotional social connection, who's the one who will be like to his older brother, like, older brother, you should just ask me nicely for the toy. And he's actually <laughs> said that before. Like, you have to use your words. And I'm like, oh my gosh, parenting sometimes actually pays off. There has been so many amazing things you've shared today, Angela, and I'm so excited about all the things that you've shared. Uh, where can we find out more about your TED Talk? I know you've got a book. Um, where is the best way to get a hold of all that awesome information? Yeah, so you could actually find most of it right on timbernook.com um, on our website. You can also follow us on Facebook as well. And that's where we post a lot of the connections between outdoor play and how it's affecting development for children. Great. Um, Angela, thank you so much for your time today. I feel like I could probably talk to you all day. I think this is so fascinating. And thank you for the work that you do to get kids outside and playing like this. You know, like it sounds like it has lifelong benefits like what a job that you're able to do and what a what a gift you're able to give to all of those kids playing with their three little pigs houses or resolving issues <laughs> in the forest so thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise we will drop in all of those links that you've mentioned into our show notes so you can go and find out more about all of those things that Angela's talked about we'd love to know what you think of our episode as well you can find us over on Instagram at get outside with kids you can send us a DM there if you found something really interesting from what Angela said or if you've got more questions um, we also love hearing um, tips on who you'd like to hear next on the podcast and we'll be back again next week with another episode of Get Outside with Kids. 